Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the unfiltered pediatric dentistry podcast. All right. Well, Wes, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate you. I know we were just talking about your Eastern time. You're an hour ahead of me and we already kind of pushed this back late. So I find that these, these later podcasts on the, on the summer days when you've been seeing patients all day, and I know you guys are busy sometimes like it takes every ounce of strength to like bring some energy to the table and knock out these podcasts late. So I appreciate you coming on and, uh, and talking some financial stuff that I always like talking about and kind of going over some of these things with the listener. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Casey. It's my pleasure. I'm glad you had me on. I'm more than happy to do it. And hopefully we can share a few tips here for uh, the pediatric dentist to take with them. And uh, hopefully it brought a positive experience and uh, maybe they'll listen to a thing or two. I like it. So Wes, let me go over real quick why, how you and I got in touch and why I got you on the podcast. I know. uh, Are you cracking a beer with me? Hell yeah. What do you got there? I am. (laughs) Yeah, I like. What do you got? I've got a Fiddler's Nightmare um, here in North Carolina. Craft beer is like the thing. Mm-hmm. So it's all over the place. Uh, so it's a local one. Uh, it's an IPA. Awesome. That sounds good. I got an IPA as well here. Um, anyways, so you, um, I got a ten, uh, in touch with kind of your group. Uh, when I was an associate up in Minnesota, I, I briefly associated for a period of time. Um, the owner of that practice, um, who I'd like to have on the podcast someday, uh, was always reading the McGill advisory, like this little business newsletter that was pertinent to dentists and practice owners. And he was a really big advocate of it and tried to get me to, you know, I, I read a couple articles, but it didn't apply as much to me. Well, then once I bought my practice, I started thinking about some of these concepts again, and I ended up subscribing back to you guys based on his recommendation. You know, you know, it's a subscription, as you know, pay for it, get a, a copy sent to you every month. But just, I, I signed up and got a couple copies sent to me chock full of really good information, very up to date on what the markets are doing, just some things to be thinking about in terms of insurance and liability coverage and retirement and taxes and all these different things. And I thought to myself, you know, there needs to be more pediatric dentists reading these kind of bulletins just to stay up to date with kind of current events and finance. And so that's how I reached out to you guys and the the McGill team and, and you and I got in contact. So I want to make sure I put a plug in that I really like your guys's, you know, monthly bulletin and if that's, you know, monthly newsletter and I, I get a lot of information out of it. And I think it's a, a really good piece of information that you guys put out there every month. I'm sure there's, you put a lot of work in behind the scenes, but uh, I appreciate you guys putting that out. Cause it's very useful. Oh no, thank you. We call it a three-legged stool here. So we do consulting, uh, we do speaking, and then we write the newsletter and it gives us good balance that when we're out speaking or consulting with doctors, we have a pretty good idea of what's going on in their life. So we try our best to get information out there at, when it's pertinent to them, uh, and that they need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wes, do you want to just, before we start diving into these, these 10 financial mistakes that young pediatric dentists might make, um, give us just a, a quick little background on your professional history. Um, what you do at the McGill group, you just kind of go over your professional history and kind of your background and what you do on a day-to-day ba- basis here. Yeah. So I'm a CPA. Um, we mostly, I think, are most well known for being the tax guys when it comes to dentistry, and that's written inside of the McGill Advisory Newsletter. Uh, we also consult with doctors. So I have been with the McGill and Hill Group for 
I think about five years now. I'm actually the principal of McGill and Lyon Dental Advisors. And uh, we really do nothing but consult with dentists on their practice management, their personal financial planning, and their taxes. And there's really no way of, it's kind of like another three-legged stool. You really can't do one without the other. It's kind of like if you go to a dentist office and they have a spending problem and you show them how to make 100000 more, they'll just spend it. And now we've got a bigger spending problem. Uh, same thing with the taxes. You know, hey, we want to lower the taxes, but we don't want to talk about the practice. I'm like, well, the practice is causing the taxes. So they're all interrelated. And we've really created our niche around just consulting uh, for dentist only. I always laugh with people. Um, I can pretty much flip to a page in a dentist tax return and find what I need within uh, 10 seconds. Uh, if you handed me like a construction company return, I would be utterly clueless. <laughs> we only know dentistry, uh, but that's where I fit in with the group. So I work or run the consulting firm. Uh, we also have, uh, it's the McGill and Hill group. So we're the McGill side. We do the consulting. We do the advisory. John McGill is the owner and editor of the McGill advisory. And then Roger Hill, and company, they actually do dental practice transitions. Uh, so that's the other main component of our group. So if you're looking to sell, uh, looking to bring a partner on, uh, an associate, anything of that nature, uh, they would help with that. And we have a law firm that kind of works hand in hand with that transitions group, because obviously once you bring a partner on, the next thing you do is sign some legal documents to make it official. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, so it's kind of cool. You guys do, you know, a nice variety of things. So you guys have experts and a big team of people that can do a little bit, you know, if you got tax issues, you got a couple guys specializing in that legal issues, you got to, you know, so it's kind of nice to have a very comprehensive team of, of specialists, I guess, to help out with just about anything that, um, gets throws at you, thrown at you here. So Wes, let's, uh, let's not waste any time. I want to dive in. Cause I feel like we've got a lot of, you know, big, broad topics that, you know, we we're covering so much, we probably can't get too much into weeds of things and I don't want to turn it into a three hour podcast. So I just wanted to, to dive in and kind of get going on, uh, on this article you had written. So, um, so I know today we're going to talk about, you know, 10 common financial state mistakes that young dentists are making kind of trying to keep it specific to pediatric dentists, but essentially any dentist that makes early on in their career. And I know this was, um, this was an article that you had written in the McGill advisory in that newsletter, I think a, a couple of years ago, but I thought that would be a, a good topic to hit on today. And so um, I figured I'd just pull up that list. I'm going to kind of let you kick us off and start breaking, breaking down some of these things. And then um, I'm going to sit back and kind of learn some things. And if I have questions, I might kind of like interject or sort of just kind of ex have you expand on some certain things, but I'm going to kind of let you kick us off and start, start hammering out this list and going over some of the big things on the list here. Okay, great. Well, the, the first one we have is improper insurance. Um, and I think every dentist, uh, pediatric dentist, are definitely not uh, immune to this. One of the first people waiting for you when you graduate is an insurance agent. Um, a lot of times they're kind of disguising themselves as a financial advisor as well. Um, while it can be true, most of the time insurance agents are really salespeople. Um, so it's very, very rare that a young pediatric dentist doesn't get hooked in to having the wrong type of insurance right out the gate. It's really just how long they're gonna be in there. And there's three types that every pediatric dentist is gonna need related to being a dentist. And obviously you need other types of insurance, but we're gonna talk about relating specifically to being a dentist. And the first and foremost everyone needs to get is disability insurance. Now, right when you graduate from school, uh, you have usually a ton of debt 
Um, you do have great earnings potential in the future, but if you were to get disabled and not be able to practice uh, that education, all that investment, it's a liability and you've got nothing to show for it. So disability really is the biggest risk that a dentist is going to face. And pediatrics especially, um, it, it's one of the hardest working uh, types of dentistry out there. So a pediatric dentist goes, you know, when Obamacare came in, every child uh, was now mandated to have dental insurance. It really changed how things were done. Um, it, it's really turned into a numbers and volume game. So there's a lot of wear and tear on a pediatric dentist body throughout the years. Uh, disability, you know, we hope it doesn't happen, but statistically, it's the most likely thing to go wrong. Now, where dentists typically go wrong, a pediatric dentist is somebody from one of these big insurance companies is there at the door waiting for you. Uh, they're going to give you a nice steak dinner, uh, make you feel special and talk about how they're going to protect you like nobody else will. And they all have their sales pitch. They are very, very well-trained salespeople. Uh, they're not really experts in insurance. Um, so most doctors, I would say 90% that come through the door to see me are overpaying for their insurance. Um, so if you want to not overpay for your disability insurance, you can go to the ADA to get it. And the ADA will absolutely be the cheapest place for you. Um, now, some of the downsides that they're going to tell you, you know, don't do this is going to be, hey, that premium's not level. Well, we're going to talk about some other things. If you're doing what you should as a dentist, by the time you reach about 55, you shouldn't need this insurance anymore. Uh, you should have enough money socked away where if you got disabled, it would be okay. So we're not planning on keeping the insurance forever. And that's the key for this. But if you want to look at the premium difference between the ADA and what you pay to one of these bigger firms, it, that's probably the equivalent of the commission the insurance agent got. Gotcha. Um, comment on the, uh, on the, uh, the disability side, you, um, correct me here, but you know, a mistake that I made for my disability insurance when I became a practice owner was, um, I think the first year I started, you obviously own a practice, you can start expensing some things. So some of the insurances like my malpractice, I was running through there. Well, I put disability insurance as, um, you know, a deductible expense, like on my, in my bookkeeping, Luckily, my accountant caught it and kind of reviewed that. But I guess important thing that I learned was if you're when you're with your disability insurance, you want to pay those actually pay those taxes, don't deduct it, pay the taxes up front. And that way, if you ever become disabled, that that benefit is um, available to you, you know, tax free. So you get the full benefit amount. Um, so that was something I learned. Is that correct? Uh, that's 100% correct. And sounds like you've got a pretty sharp CPA. Um, what happens if you pay for it and deduct it is the payment you get. So let's say you have 15000 a month of disability payments coming in. If you were deducting it as a practice owner, that fifteen a month is taxable. So you'll be lucky to see 10 of it. Uh, that's a pretty big bite for, you know, a few thousand bucks of a deduction. So what most good CPAs do is what yours did and just say, hey, uh, pay for it personally moving forward, but they go ahead and do it as a kind of record keeping thing in the back end to not deduct it to make sure if you ever got disabled that uh, you'd be in good shape. Um, but disability premiums are the disability and life you need to pay for personally. Okay. Disability and life pay for um, personally. Got it. The, the other disability one is disability business overhead that you actually pay for through the practice. 
Um, but that is income that would replace your expenses in the practice. So it's not meant for you personally, but as a practice owner, if you got disabled for five months and you had to shut down the practice and let's say, or maybe you found somebody, but only part-time, and then you had to keep the doors open. Uh, you had to pay the note you took out to pay for either the equipment, the loan, whatever it is. That policy would actually come in and pay those items. Um, that one typically gets paid through the practice. And then the life insurance is really a personal life insurance policy. Um, a lot of people have life insurance uh, either for the bank or because they have a family they want to make sure is taken care of um, a lot of times both. So if you go to buy a practice, the bank's going to require it. Um, if you have children, any good financial advisor is going to require it. <laughs> um, so you're going to need enough there. And that's another one of the big ones I think people get called up in is they combine insurance and investing. And it's about one of the worst ideas you could ever have. I've never seen anyone win on it. Uh, it's really just a sales pitch that your insurance companies are selling you. Um, so I, I want to recommend it. There's a few different types of policies, but I'm going to generalize them uh, for the podcast today. And it just say, you know, hey, if we've got an insurance product on one side and an investment vehicle on the other side, we can either have them separately, truly understand the cost of each of them, understand where the money's going and understand the tax treatment, or we can pay a whole bunch of fees for the insurance company to put them in one box together and never open the box to tell us what's going on. Hmm. Uh, maybe uh, we could use that to knock out, I, we're going to jump to three, but we can just switch orders here. But that kind of ties in well to saving in the wrong place. Um, I know you had kind of discussed that on financial mistakes uh, was, you know, wrapping up a bunch of money in a whole life insurance plan that you probably could invest and get better returns on just doing some other, you know, smarter moves there. So do you want to maybe expand on that, on that, that third one, I guess, or saving in the wrong place and how that ties in? Absolutely. One of the biggest mistakes I see is these whole life insurance policies or universal life policies and doctors pay into them thinking they're going to, you know, they always show them these great projections. They promise tax-free money at the end. Uh, there's like a tiny bit of truth in there and then like an exaggeration for 80% of what they're saying. Um, but the biggest problem here or biggest about three problems. The first is if you buy a, one of these life policies, it's going to be on an after-tax basis, meaning if you put 6000 into this policy per month, you have to make 10000 to put it in there. It's much better to just go ahead and take the full 10000 put it into a retirement plan that's going to be tax-deductible, that's going to grow tax-deferred, and then pay the taxes later versus going and paying the taxes up front. And this insurance agents, even financial advisors, um, I'm... I, sometimes I shy away from this, but I am a certified financial planner. I tend to call myself a practicing CPA, though. Um, I, I had to go do ethics to keep my certified financial planner uh, license or certificate um, active. So I go to do it and I'm in a room and uh, nobody there knows me, um, but there's about 30 CFPs and me. And then they're all talking about how they need to do something about the taxes and pay the taxes now. Tax rates are going up. Tax rates are going up. We're not doing our clients a favor by putting money in a retirement plan. Not one of them uh, realized that the tax system is progressive. And at the height of your career as a dental practice owner, you're going to be in the top bracket. You're going to be 32, 35, 37. Uh, when you retire, you're going to be 
10, 12 if you play your cards right. And it's not that I'm going to promise the tax rates won't go up, but you're going to look rather middle class in retirement. You're not going to be in these top brackets. So even if the 10% bracket goes up to 12, 15, it's still a whole lot lower than the 37 you'd be paying today. And a lot of these advisors and insurance agents try to convince you to pay today with the fear of higher taxes later, not realizing that when you finally take this money out of the retirement plan, it's the only money you're going to be taking out. Uh, So it's just a huge no to go ahead and do anything that you pay the taxes now versus paying them later when you can you can't control the rates, but you can control when it comes out. Uh, Most doctors, if they play their cards right and they retire a little bit earlier than, you know, expected, say 60 from 60 up until the point you're age 72 and have to take required minimum distributions. Your income's just very, very little. So you've got this wiggle room where you would be paying no income taxes later in life and you could take that retirement plan money out at that point at a very advantageous tax rate now it's really thinking long term uh, and a lot of people fail to do this until they're you know 45 50 light bulb kind of goes off that you know something fishy is going on but the sooner you start the better it's going to be and that's the biggest issue with these insurance products is uh, you know, if you put the money in and you pay the tax to do it, uh, great. My 10 turned to six and now I, I'm wondering why I'm not getting the returns I want to. Well, it's because the government took it. Mm. Um, the other thing these companies do with this is there's just a ton of fees involved. You know, I've had multiple doctors come in where they have they've been doing this their whole career. All of a sudden they have a million dollars in a whole life insurance policy. And I kind of lay out, hey, here's all the total premiums you've paid over the history of having this policy. And nine times out of 10, if the policy is worth a million, they've paid 1.2 or 1.3 in premium. And they say, well, I got my life insurance too. And I say, well, was your life insurance really $300,000 over that 20 year period? Mm -hmm. Um, Probably not. But then it gets even worse uh, because these life insurance policies, they actually have tax basis in them. Uh, So if you have a million dollar policy or a million dollars of cash value, you have a tax basis. Uh, Even if you put 1.2 million in, a lot of people don't realize is the fees don't go to your tax basis. So this one doctor in particular I'm thinking of, he'd put over a million in, it was worth about a million. And then to take it out, he had to pay taxes on it. And that's just, uh, it's an ugly day for everybody. You just want to avoid ever being in that position. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, so summarize, be, be cautious about, um, a whole life plan. And, um, is there a good alternative if you're a young pediatric dentist and you're, you're starting to be cash flow positive and say, say you own a practice now and you're starting to make some big checks and you know, you're starting to think, man, I got to get serious about saving for retirement. You're, you know, quick hitter list order of operations for putting money away, you know, to try and get to that higher savings rate, um, to be able to retire at a decent age. What's, what are kind of the big hitter things that come to mind other than a whole life policy? Where's a better place to save that money? Absolutely. First place is going to be a 401k uh, plan. Um, now younger pediatric dentist, um, pediatric dentists are in a very unique position that a lot of them actually cold start practices. Um, I think you cold started yours, right? I did. Yep. Almost two years ago. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very rare in any other form of dentistry because it's very, very difficult to get patients. 
Um, but in pediatrics, it's very easy to get patients. It's kind of backwards. It's just very difficult to actually be the pediatric dentist every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a challenging uh, work environment. Um, but a lot of pediatric dentists can come into a lot of money very quickly. Um, so with that, almost all of pediatric dental practice owners should be running a 401k. First thing you do is maximize your salary deferral, and everyone can do up to $20,500. Second thing you do, if your wife is or husband is not working and staying at home with the kids, you get your spouse on the payroll to have them make the maximum salary deferral. Uh, that way, you can put twenty thousand five hundred away each on a tax deductible basis. That's forty one thousand. Um, now, the next part of a four hundred one k profit sharing uh, plan is actually the profit sharing. So most people are familiar with the four hundred one k side, and four hundred one k is actually the section in the tax code why it's called that. But the four hundred one k is what allows you to defer part of your salary. Uh, most everybody in America is familiar with the four hundred one k. The employer puts in a little bit. Um, small businesses oftentimes also do profit sharing and profit sharing is where you can start to put away, you know, an extra 30, 40 ish thousand dollars, uh, potentially for you and your spouse. Now this gets a little tricky though, because you have to put money in for the employees to get the money in for yourself when you're younger. And this is where it's really tricky for a pediatric dentist. Oftentimes a pediatric dentist might find themselves with a staff that's older than them. (laughs) This does not bode well for the retirement plan testing, for the profit sharing testing. Um, So there's something that will work well for the younger doctors. It's called an integrated plan. And what it does is it integrates Social Security benefits into the retirement plan testing. Uh, So the way these things work is it's supposed to replace a certain percentage of everybody's income in retirement. Um, Now, the problem is uh, if your staff is around your age and you're replacing, let's say, 10% of everybody's income, you've got to put enough in to replace 10% of their income as well. But when you integrate Social Security benefits into the calculation, um, what happens is if your salary is over the Social Security wage base, which is just under 150, let's say you put your salary at 305, all of a sudden, we have to make up that extra 155000 for you to get your 10% replacement in retirement. All of a sudden, we're putting a whole lot more money into the doctor's pocket versus the staff's pocket, and it starts to work very, very well. Now, each of these plans is unique, different. There's uh, different ways to test them depending on your staff demographics. Um, so this isn't something I recommend uh, having a do-it-yourselfer for. A lot of times your CPA might be able to point you in the right direction. Um, if you have a specialized financial planner, they can point you in the right direction. Um, if you do have a third-party administrator that you know that works well, that can work too. But most dentists, when they go to get their own third-party administrator, they end up in a cookie-cutter plan that's not designed well to do profit sharing. Um, but the retirement plan is absolutely the first because everybody can go right off the bat, get 41000 If your spouse is working somewhere else, have them do it into the employer uh, retirement plan they have available to them. If they're working somewhere else and there is no employer-sponsored retirement plan, put them on your payroll, get them in your plan as well. So that's going to be number one uh, retirement plan. Uh, First, when you're young, do the 401k profit sharing. Uh, Since most of this audience is going to be younger, I won't get into this second type of plan, but I will put the teaser out there. Uh, There's something called a cash balance defined benefit plan. 
it'll start to work well in your 40s to by the time you're 50, it should work really well. But my promise to everybody is if you manage to maximize your 401k profit sharing plan and you maximize a cash balance plan, uh, by the time they tell you your cash balance plan is full, you'll be retired. There's just it's almost impossible to not be retired at that point. So that should be every dentist goal is to do those two things, hopefully save some extra money on the side, but that'll do it. Um, The second thing, and these next items will really apply to everybody, um, even if you're an associate with no retirement plan available to you. Um, The first is going to be a health savings account. Now, A health savings account is uh, exactly what it says, but in order to get one, you have to be in a qualifying high deductible health plan. Now, that doesn't mean the deductible is actually very high. Uh, It just means it's a qualifying type of plan. And what the real difference is, is the who pays first. And oftentimes in a high deductible plan, you'll have to pay first uh, before the plan kicks in. Um, But the premiums are lower and then it allows you to put uh, if you're married or on a family plan up to $7,300 away in a health savings account tax-free each year. And the way the rules are written, uh, they expect everybody to spend this money, um, but we don't want you to spend it. It goes in, you get a tax deduction for it on your return. Uh, you can either spend it or invest it. We want you to invest it. So each year you put the 7300 in, keep investing it, investing it, and save your receipts. That way, when you're retired, it all comes out tax free as long as you reimburse yourself for medical expenses. And they don't have to be medical expenses incurred right now. They can be medical expenses that were incurred 20 years ago, as long as you were covered by the plan when you had the expense. Um, So a lot of plans, they'll actually track your expenses for you like mine does. I've Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's connected to health equity. I don't actually spend my HSA money, but anytime I wanted to, all of my qualifying medical expenses just go over. They're automatically listed and I could click any one of them at any time and reimburse myself. Uh, So we want to do that because it's the only money you'll never pay tax on. Uh, You get a tax deduction when it goes in there. It grows tax deferred. And if you reimburse yourself, it comes out tax free. Uh, Every other pile of money you have, unfortunately, the government will get their hands on one way or another. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That triple tax advantage that they talk about with uh, the HSA. So that's good. And um, I I did go through the, in my practice, so we're open a a year and a half, but um, we became profitable and built up the practice quick enough that I opened up a 401k, not, you know, six or seven months in, and then we added the profit sharing. So the big thing I was going to... you know, comment on was you definitely want a, a second set of hands on that, you know, and I like to be a do it myself or as well, keep costs low, but setting up a, um, you know, a, a 401k is not really something you should do yourself. So I, I found that out the hard way. You definitely need to just pay for the professional help and a, a good third party administrator and have it set up, um, correctly. So Wes, just to, to get us back on track time-wise, a uh, quick hitter one was number two, not having a budget. So we talked about improper insurance, saving in the wrong place, um, not having a budget was on the list at number two, knock that one out quick. So we can, we can hit a couple of these later ones, but not having a budget common mistake. Uh, yeah, most, um, I wouldn't even say this specific to dentist. Most Americans spend what they make. It's just a habit. It's a nasty one. And it gets the best of probably 75 to 80% of America. Uh, so what you want to do is make sure you know how much you're spending, 
um, and have a budget to go off of. General rule for everybody without getting any specific advice, a third for taxes, a third for savings, and a third you get to spend on who cares uh, about. (laughs) Now, if you can follow that, you'll be all right. There's two main ways to track um, your living expenses. One is you can use an app like uh, I personally have personal capital and um, not affiliated with them or anything. I just tried them all out since I was recommending people do it. And that was the one that was easiest. It automatically recognized my credit card payments, loan payments. It understood it wasn't perfect on what was a meal versus what was something else, but uh, it got me the total number correctly without having to do any inputs. And that's what I'm really worried about is the total number. The other way, which is how uh, I treat my bank account with my wife and I is um, you just set up your cash flow so you know how much money goes in your account each month. And I, when I got married, we set up a joint bank account and I told her, hey, uh, here's the bills. <laughs> here's how much money is coming into the account each month. And I really don't need you to ask me. I don't need to monitor it. I really just don't care. <laughs> You're in charge of the money and we spend it till it's gone. And I've already saved everything I need to. So if it's there, have fun with it. If it's not there, we're on a budget. <laughs> and it's just that simple. Keeps everything flowing, keeps my savings. I basically pay my savings first, spend second. And that way you can spend guilt free. Um, Casey, I know we were talking, you're recently married too and no kids yet. Uh, so we live in this uh, we live in this part where basically every expense is a discretionary expense. We don't have any real needs outside the food and the mortgage. So I don't like to dig into mine. I know I could cut 90% of it out and I just don't want to. You want to enjoy your life too. But that's an easy way to be able to do it without having to look back each month and, you know, oh crap, I spent $1,200 going out to eat. Well, if you saved enough, uh, you shouldn't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, number four, poor debt management. Um, thought you had a, a good couple ones in here. Big, big uh, key point was talking about some credit card debt. You know, and I would hope that most dentists that go through pediatric dentist ten years of school and all the residency and everything have gotten at least a lecture at some point about how it's not really smart to carry a ton of credit card debt and um, uh, you, you know, kind of prioritizing getting that cleaned up first, but it sounds like you still see plenty of dentists that, that battle credit card debt, maybe probably new residents, I would assume, or like grads that get out right away and had to put the last six months of their life on a credit card to finish out their schooling. And then they just got to play catch up on it. But what are you seeing for poor debt management on your side? You know, usually it's doctors that recently purchased a practice and some of it kind of starts out of fear that there's not going to be enough money in the practice and they haven't taken enough out and they know they should pay off the credit card but you know they've only ran three or four payrolls and taking money out of the business account for themselves just isn't on the table (laughs) you know emotionally they're still scared of the payroll and the debt payments Uh, that's usually where i see it Uh, generally speaking we you know i'm not against credit cards just paying in full every month Um, But if you do find yourself with a problem or you can't save the right amount of money, just get away from them. The rewards aren't going to be there. Um, But the biggest thing I see on poor debt management, and everyone really needs to understand this concept, is every month, whether or not you're a practice owner, you're a resident, uh, just out as an associate, every month, three people get paid. Uh, One is the bank. One is you. And the third is Uncle Sam. 
And where most people screw this up is they think, oh my gosh, I've got to pay off all this debt. I've got two, $300,000 of student loan debt, have to get rid of it. And they want to accelerate those payments. And I 100% get it emotionally, um, but they don't realize that the bank is charging them, even with interest rates up, you know, four, four and a half percent on practice loans right now, you know, five or 6% on mortgages. A lot of student loans are still in that six to seven. You know, they're so freaked out of these loans that, you know, they're paying the taxes to prepay the loans. The bank's charging four to seven percent, but Uncle Sam's charging 40. And they're just making this trade off to get rid of the debt that makes zero sense on paper. Uh, you really have to look at it and say, hey, did I maximize my tax deductible retirement plans? Did I maximize my HSA? Um, did I do the backdoor Roth IRA? Um, if you can do those three things um, and they're all maximized for you and your spouse, now I'm all for paying off the debt super quick. But you have to take advantage of these tax items uh, because otherwise you're paying Uncle Sam 40 cents on the dollar to save six or seven cents on the dollar with the bank. And it just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I actually spoke to a group of residents down at the Hinman Dental Society a few years back. And the uh, I, I didn't realize how how much this really hit home until I went up there and I actually ran through an example and said, hey, student A is going to get out of school and just completely pay off the student loans. Uh, student B is going to get out of school and they're going to do it the way I'm telling them to. And I ran the numbers out for 40 years when they retired and without changing spending, any other habits, nothing, just simply taking the tax advantage route versus the non-tax advantage route was $2,500 a month of discretionary cash flow after tax that the doctor who did it on a tax efficient basis could spend in retirement. And an extra $2,500 a month to spend is no little amount, especially on a discretionary basis. So it's, it's just super important to not be scared of the debt, um, to understand it, tackle it, but make sure you do all these tax items first. Yeah. It was cool to hear you say, uh, you know, that I, going back to what you said, there are pediatric dentists, you start a practice in a busy area and not everybody's like this, but some practices blow up and get cash flow positive and start stacking up a lot of cash really early, um, where it's possible to max out all those buckets. You know, you've, you've maxed out, you've done your backdoor Roth, you've done your 401k, your profit sharing. Um, maybe you've hammered out some of the higher interest student, student loan debt. And you're just like, okay, I still have some extra money. Maybe I'm a super saver. What should I do with this extra cash? It's nice to hear from somebody like yourself at that point, you get a green light. If you want to start, you know, you can start doing different things with it, but if you want to pay off some low interest debt, there's not really anything wrong with that. Cause you sometimes hear the opposite. So that's uh that's nice to get feedback on. No, I think, um, Oh, what's his name? The, uh, Who's the big uh, finance guy that says pay off all your debt? The Dave Ramsey the guy, Republic. Dave Ramsey, right? Okay. Yeah, Ramsey. Dave yeah. Ramsey gets a lot of hate from financial advisors because I say, well, you know, if you didn't do this, you know, look how much money you could make, look how much more you'd have. Dave Ramsey understands something better than anybody in the country. And that's that, look, 1% of the population will actually invest that money and they'll get the return and they'll do better. The other 99%, if it doesn't go to the debt, they're just going to go buy a boat, a new car, a vacation. They're not actually going to do anything productive with it. So at least give them in a habit that's going to increase their balance sheet. Um, and if, you know, at that point too, especially with the student loan debt, 
Now, I will tell you, I, I do not like prepaying practice debt. I do not like prepaying office building debt. Um, those are two I like to ride out their income producing assets. But debt on the personal side, especially the student loans, um, I will say, I, you know, practice what I preach, not what I do. There was one year where I forewent uh, maxing my 401k because I saw the light at the end of the tunnel and I could write the whole check and get rid of the student nice. loans. Yeah. And I, I've been there and done that. It's not fun having them. They hang over your shoulder. So you're mm. not going to hear me preaching, you know, keep them for 20 years. I mean, get mm. your happiness back and <laughs> get them mm-hmm. gone. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It feels good to get those cleaned up. So, okay. Uh, let's talk about number five, concentrating on salary. Um, think this one could be a good one that gets uh, underappreciated on a lot of dentists don't talk about once you get up and going, but you know, there's a lot of talk about saving taxes or where to invest money and all these different things. But, you know, ultimately making that shovel bigger, it's something that you should kind of focus on, whether it's opening a practice or becoming a practice owner or whatever the case might be. But let's talk a little bit uh, about concentrating on salaries of pediatric dentist. Yeah, there's a ton of young dentists, especially pediatric dentists, because groups will pay a lot for pediatric dentists. Um, so they look at this big salary number and say, you know, a lot of the times in pediatrics, you can make more than your counterparts coming out of school. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the productions there. Somebody needs it done. They don't mind paying a high salary for a pediatric dentist. So a lot of the dentists will do it and they might overlook an opportunity to go buy a practice somewhere else. And they just see the salary. They think I have to pay my bills. I, I must do this. And I 100% get it emotionally. I mean, you've put all this sacrifice in, you've gone through this residency, you've got this huge student loan debt. Um, But understand that sometimes these groups are preying on that. They know, (laughs) they know if they throw an extra 20 grand in your face versus maybe a better opportunity long-term that you're likely to go ahead and and pull that extra 20 grand. Um, This was another one when I talked to the residents at the Hinman, I actually lined this up and I put an example of, hey, Dr. One does the associate route, Dr. Two buys the practice. And to see the difference on that, it's just not even comparable. It's millions and millions and millions. Most young doctors, if they're student uh, debt strapped, really can't afford to not purchase a practice. Um, So they go out there, they concentrate on this stuff. They look at, you know, hey, there's a signing bonus here. I'm going to take the signing bonus. Um, or they get a job offer in the place they really want to be at. So they go to that place and they don't realize they signed a non-compete that now keeps them from owning a practice in that area uh, until their cooling off period of a few years is done. Um, So before you go out there and you look at these offers, you need to understand, is it apples to apples or, you know, is there an orange in one hand, apple in the other hand? Um, The most fruitful thing you can do, and I think, Casey, you can probably talk to this more than anyone, is become a practice owner. I mean, your income just isn't comparable. And when you look at why, it's quite simple. Uh, As a pediatric dentist, a lot of times they will pay you on the restorative or they might pay you a low amount on the restorative and a low amount on the hygiene. Um, Well, the owner of that practice is taking the big cut of the hygiene, right? They're not only getting the cut of their own production, but they're getting a cut of the hygiene. And hygiene is very, very productive in a pediatric practice. It leads to a very high income. Um, As an associate, you're just not going to share in that. And it, these groups, you're not going to share in it. So there's nothing a, a wrong with the groups per se. Um, it's just to understand that 
their best interest is not you making your maximum earnings possible. Their best interest is running their business and taking as much of that profit as they can. So it's okay to go there, you know, nothing against it. But again, if you're really trying to maximize your earnings, maximize your wealth, uh, practice ownership is the way to get there. Yeah. And uh, another thing that I, I can kind of reflect on with that as well is another perk is if you become a practice owner, you can do, say you do a million dollars in dentistry as an associate, you're getting paid 30 or 32% of collection or whatever it is. So making 300 grand, you know, you can go and own a practice, make that same million dollars. But if you run a very lean office, tight ship, do a lot of things yourself, you know, don't spend a lot of frivolous money, like really watch your expenses. You know, I've, I've, you can find out pretty quickly you can keep an overhead in pediatrics sub 50% in some in most instances especially if you're not in a you know a real tight market big city expensive area but very easy to get sub 50% so all of a sudden that same million dollars you're making 550 600,000 dollars you know um you know so so do the same amount of dentistry but your take home just goes up so quickly cuz you have the ability to control your overhead which is um another, another nice feature there. So Wes, I'm going to keep yeah. us moving here. Let's hit, uh, let's hit number six. We've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but it's an important one. Um, paying excessive taxes. Love the way you put that earlier. We get all caught up in, you know, a 6% mortgage versus a 5% mortgage rate and 3% student loans. When in reality, uncle Sam comes in and kicks you in the crotch and takes 40% of your money and runs away. So like that gets under, that's a good way that you presented that. And, um, uh, so yeah, touch on uh, paying paying excess, excessive taxes, which as you know, taxes are an issue with pediatric dentists. Yeah, m- many dentists, um, especially pediatric dentists, I think really I've said this a few times, but you're the busiest of any group of dentists. You know, calling a pediatric dentist at 2 p.m. to try to get them on the phone is you're just never. The front desk is going to laugh at you. You know, most of the other specialties I'm in, uh, other than maybe oral surgery, if you call them, you get a call back if it's, you know, very important within an hour or two hours. I won't pick on anybody, but certain specialties, you know, they'll pick up the phone. (laughs) Pediatric dentist not picking up the phone. A lot of times you just, you know, plug, 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 uh, go, go, go. You get home, you want to relax, leave the loan. And before you know it, the CPA is calling you and, you know, uh uh-oh. We owe a whole lot of money in taxes and need to get going. So a lot of doctors just don't take advantage of all the perks they can. Um, so we've got, we put information out all the time on this. I'll review a couple of the just most prevalent ones. Um, one is the Augusta rule. You can actually rent your home for up to 14 days tax-free. So if you have a business purpose to for your, your corporation to rent your home, now you have to be a corporation. You can be an LLC taxed as a corporation, S corporation, um, but you can't be a sole proprietor. And uh, put that in um, simple terms, if your business tax return is part of your individual return, you don't have two separate returns, you can't do this. Anybody who has two separate returns, one for their business, one for their personal, is set up in a structure in which you can do this. You can actually rent your home from the corporation for up to 14 days. It's tax-free to you individually and the corporation gets a write-off. Another one we want to do is travel. Um, Most vacations dentists take, we want to figure out how we can make it a write-off. One easy way is to go to CE. Uh, Go to CE somewhere you want to go. Make sure that you build your vacation around it. You want your spouse on the payroll, so everything's deductible. Um, Another one is just uh, if you travel with any other dentists. Um, I 
call those stubby clubs. Those aren't vacations, they're stubby clubs. So somebody needs to write the agenda, make sure everybody has a reason to write it off, but you can write those off as well. Um, and then uh, otherwise you can do a board of directors meeting with your spouse if you know, you're know you both on the board. Uh, for that one, you really need to have minutes. Um, but what I'm telling you to do here isn't to just write anything through. Don't ask your CPA, hey, you know, I heard I could write my personal vacations off. You need to tell your CPA, hey, we're going to CE or, hey, look, we have a, uh, you know, the, the study club coming up. Here's our notes about it. Here's our board of directors meeting notes. If you tell your CPA it was a personal vacation, they're kind of required by law to tell the IRS it was a personal vacation. <laughs> so you really need to make up a reason here, a legitimate business reason. Um, and then the other big one is meals. Um, I try not to talk to my wife about uh, work at dinner, but pretty much uh, I found that doesn't work well for marriage purposes. So every time we sit down for dinner, we have to talk about the business, mm -hmm. uh, which I guess is great, but that's a business meal. My wife's on the payroll. So uh, we write that through the business. Those are the, the big ones. And the other one is um, once your children reach age six, they're actually eligible to be on the payroll if you play your cards right. Uh, so this isn't just slap them on the payroll for no reason. In order to really make it work well, you need to make sure that you document their duties, uh, what their expectations are. We're not going to pay them a ton, so we don't need a ton of high-level duties. You know, they're taking out the trash, washing the cars. Uh, we really want to make sure that kids learn, you know, how to be successful independent adults. And, uh, you know, since you're a dentist and have a high income, you think you need to go out of your way to show them that. So the first thing is the the proof that they're doing the work. Uh, the second thing is they need to actually get paid. They get paid through payroll. They have their own account. Um, and the third thing is it needs to be a reasonable rate. I think a general rule is about $1,000 for every year old they are. So at age six, we start them at about $6,000. Um, and that tends to work very well if you do everything properly. Um, so that's the key. Make sure you have all this documentation. So if you're ever to be asked about it, you can uh, prove it. Uh, make sure you don't take the money into your own account. I've seen that too. pay the kids, bring the money back to mom and dad's account. That's uh, more than frowned upon. That's fraud. You have to keep the money in their name, put it in a Roth IRA form. Uh, and then third, make sure it's reasonable and uh, we actually have a process for vetting tax laws here. Uh, I won't get into too much detail, but you know, funny quick one. There is a court case where the IRS uh, tried to take a taxpayer to court over paying their seven-year-old uh, for taking out the trash, doing other odd duties. The taxpayer argued if the seven-year-old didn't do it, somebody else would have to do it. So why shouldn't they get paid? Uh, the tax court sided in favor with the taxpayer, uh, which really set the precedent for us to put children on the payroll. Uh, but those are some of the biggest ones other than the retirement plan that we see that we want everyone to do. Uh, many more out there, but those kind of broadly apply to every pediatric dentist. Some fantastic, uh, you know, uh, thoughts there and recommendations. So really good, good things on that list. Uh, being house poor, let's, uh, let's keep on hammering here. So that's number seven and I'll review this, this list of 10 at the end and kind of, uh, congregate it uh, and review it at the end. But being house poor, a lot of young pediatric dentists listening, residents, um, and just in general, millennials listening to the podcast, including myself, just currently, or it's on their bucket list to buy a home here in the immediate future. And obviously this is a challenging time to be a first time home buyer. Um, and it gets easy to 
get roped into buying a lot more house than you should or can be purchasing. Higher interest rates are probably going to maybe slow that down a little bit, but we all kind of are aware that there's just a general shortage of homes in the United States. And so demand's high and prices are staying high. So, uh, but in, in general, it sounds like a mistake you see is pediatric dentist purchase or dentist purchasing too much home um, and maybe setting them back financially. So what are so, a couple things you see as far as the home purchasing mistakes go? Yeah, most people think of, uh, they purchase homes in terms of a mortgage payment. And that tells one side of the story. Um, but I'm on my third home and I can tell you that the mortgage payment uh, has yet to be the biggest expense with a home. So don't realize if your mortgage payment's 5000 your monthly maintenance expenses might be 2000 Your property taxes might be another 2000 on top of that. You know, before you know it, you're just spending $10,000, can't figure out where the money's going, what's going on. You just weren't expecting it. Uh, so uh, that's really the, the biggest thing I see. I had a funny one. One of my good friends actually used to live with me in my first home. I was bought it when I was young, was renting it out. And when he moved out, he asked, you know, do I miss the rent money? And I, you know, I said, yeah, kind of truthfully though, it never really got pocketed anywhere. And he bought his own home. And about six months later, he calls me because now I know what you mean. I'm at Lowe's every weekend and Mm -hmm. it's not wants, it's needs, it's 500 bucks, 600 bucks. And you just don't realize what it takes to upkeep a home. And when you're in a big one, all of a sudden, all your expenses are going to the big home. Your time's going to the big home. It just, it tears you apart quickly. And then you have to pay the taxes, can't put in the retirement plan. You got to be in there. Um, there is, a, it's just delayed gratification. If you use a rule of trying to purchase a home that's two times your salary, you should be in good shape. Now, a lot of associate doctors aren't going to like that rule. Um, it's not really going to get them far. Uh, use it as motivation to go buy a practice, start the practice and make more, (laughs) you know, don't go out and buy the home you can't afford, get an income to afford it. Would you say, uh, you know, is that twice your, at your annual pre-tax like gross income or like an after tax, like take home income? No, pre-tax, um, just twice your gross. You know, if you make 400,000, $800,000 house is probably right in the ballpark. Um, you know, if you get up to a certain point, you might want to think twice, you know, if you got two or three doctors working under you and, you know, you're making 1.5 million, you might want to rethink if I should buy a $3 million house or if the million dollar one's good enough. But yeah, for right. most people, it's going to apply pretty well. Okay. Gotcha. So being house poor, don't, don't be house poor, uh, is, and we could do a whole podcast on challenges of buying a home in this day and age with, uh, you know, with the the way the market is right now. But uh, relating to that, number eight, you've got one house, one spouse. That's one I've I've heard a couple times, and um, I, I think holds true a lot of the times. But uh, you know, you hear a lot of divorce horror stories. You know, I think I've heard somebody say every time you get divorced, you basically extend your retirement another ten years. So the guy that's on his second or third wife, you know, you'd be an oral surgeon pocketing a million bucks a year, and every time he gets divorced because he can't keep his, you know, his uh, love life together, you know, he's retiring at could have retired at 50 and then it's 60 and then it's set, you know, it just keeps on getting remarried. So one house, one spouse, what do you see there? Yeah, those are the big ones. Um, the getting divorced thing, it, you know, it happens. We don't want to discourage people. It happens too, but don't be the serial person that's on their fourth spouse. Like you just mentioned. I mean, it's going to set you back each time a pretty big amount. So try to get it right the best, uh, you can the first time. 
also, um, I've seen multiple divorces unfold right in front of me in my office. Um, I, I will tell you these things we're going over. Financial stress is almost always the true cause of a divorce. You never see somebody come in where it's just like, hey, we can, you know, if we got divorced tomorrow, we could split the money up 50-50, go on our way and just be completely fine. It's always like, uh-oh, we're selling homes, doing these things. We're under a bunch of financial pressure. And uh, usually it's one or the other. And we see both. It can be the female spending. It can be the male spending. But one's making, one's spending, and nothing's getting saved. And, you know, obviously the one making it is getting uh, under a ton of pressure, not going well. And then the one spending it, you know, it just drives people apart. So getting the finances together, making sure they work together. Uh, I actually don't allow my clients to work with me by themselves. They have to bring their spouse in. Uh, if both people aren't on the same t uh, page, then it's not going to get done. And, you know, we just don't want anybody to have a bad experience and have our name associated with it. So we just require it. Um, but that's biggest thing you can do to avoid it. Um, and then same thing with the multiple houses. Uh, taking care of a house, as we just went over, is very, very expensive. Um, there's a time and a place to think about having a multiple houses and it's retirement while you're working and you're only going to be there three or four weeks a year it's probably less than the property tax cost to just go rent the home for four weeks a year i mean i'd rather have you go rent a home for fifteen thousand dollars for a week than own a second home it's much much cheaper um, so just stay away from the second home till you know you can afford it i mean when you're retired you're going to be there three months of the year if you can afford it go for it there's more to life than money but while you're trying to save money Having a second home is just a nightmare. You're not a client. Uh, we were trying to get them to sell a second home and, you know, telling them all these things. And finally, they went out there one weekend and a small water leak had turned into a flood. It turned into like $80,000. You know, these things, when you're not at this second home, they just all compile. The repairs get worse. The maintenance gets worse. You know, you've got to pay somebody to be there while you're not. So if you can avoid those two things, you've got a much, much higher chance of success. Yeah, I've heard a, a similar version too. I've heard if it if it flies, it floats, or it, f it flirts. Avoid it at all costs. Airplanes, boats, and mistresses are the are what get the dentists in trouble. But to that point, I bet three quarters of the dentists I know own a boat or a plane to some extent. So that's a uh, not myself, but that's uh, that seems to be a common one. And nobody ever sits in their boat and says, "Man, I love this boat. I'm satisfied." They always look over and say, "That boat over there, you know, I love. Yeah, it's a nice boat. It's a nice boat. But if I had that one, that's a 38 foot bay cruiser or whatever the hell it is." And you know, so um, luckily I'm not a boat guy, but that seems to be a uh, an expensive thing that dentists get into as well. Uh, absolutely, uh, I do have a boat. I try to keep mine cheap, but then I'm learning my lesson. I bought a 20 year old one. It's in the shop right now, so I might as well bought <laughs> a 10 year old one instead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay, number nine, uh, not taking advantage of HSAs. Oh, you, we already kind of hit, hit on this one. Give me the well. We pretty much already hit on this, but um, you can kind of do that review comment real quick. But you did a nice job breaking down the triple tax advantages of a health savings account. You know, I think I'm going to flip this one since we went over. I think we missed Roth IRAs. Um, everybody needs to do a Roth IRA and everybody is eligible. Um, so if you make too much, your CPA is telling you not to, just look up what a backdoor Roth IRA is and avoid the mega backdoor Roth IRA. That's a whole life insurance policy. Uh, you just want the backdoor Roth IRA where you put 6000 in, you put it into a traditional IRA, and the next day you convert it tax-free to a Roth IRA. Now, the key to this 
and you know we could do a whole hour on it so i'll just be quick but the key is you don't have any other outstanding taxable iras so if you do have those you move them into your 401k but as long as you don't have any money in any iras all your retirements in your 401k then your money into the traditional ira and then it's called a non-deductible contribution it has a tax basis to it so if you put six in you're not allowed to deduct it just like buying a stock you would have a six thousand dollar basis when you go do the, your Roth conversion the next day, since you have basis in that, uh, you actually get a tax-free conversion. So everybody can get money into a Roth IRA, and we want to make sure everybody does because that money, once it's in, grows tax-free, comes out tax-free. Mm-hmm. I, I read a you know a story. They're constantly talking about potentially getting rid of the the backdoor Roth IRA. They talked about it, I think, somewhere in the Build Back Better, some some recent tax overhaul. It was talked about, and then it got chopped off of there, but. Um, so I, I know it's a, probably not a loophole that's going to be around forever. They make the argument that there's a few multi-bajillionaires, billionaires out there. I think like the founder of PayPal or something, you know, took that $6,000 backdoor Roth IRA, you know, 20 years ago and put it all into PayPal when he started it. And, you know, when it was a penny stock and I, I think it was PayPal, I can't remember for sure, but now it's got like several billion dollars and it's all tax free. And so you know, the people cite cases like that for a reason to get rid of the backdoor Roth IRA when in reality, 99% of the use is just normal working Americans and not bajillionaires that are, are using it to have, you know, a tax-free route in retirement. But yeah, you do hear some of those cases that give it a bad rap that they talk about chopping it for. Well, I, I do laugh at some of those. Um, if you read that tax law, it was never getting through. And you'll see this on both sides of the aisle, not to get political, but when they know a law is not getting through, they'll just, you know, throw some targets in there to say, look, we tried, we tried. Mm, And that was one of them where I just, you know, people were calling me freaking out. Like, it's not getting through. (laughs) They're just going to continue to put more ridiculous stuff in there. Um, But I tend to think it will be around. And my opinion of why it will be around is because I think Congress is all doing it. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, number 10, last one, uh, trying to be a financial expert. Um, This is obviously something that you can speak to. And in the era of dentists like myself that like to be DIYers and do things themselves just to keep costs low and be able to have extra money to put towards student loans and everything else, uh, it gets easy to want to do a lot of things yourself. But um, any, what comments do you have for a young dentist that comes to you and says, yeah, I want to do, you know, I like simple ETFs and index funds. And I want to do my own retirement planning and my own investing and my own XYZ, you know, when, when, and why is it a good idea to have a second set of eyes or a a professional in your corner? Yeah. When you're running a practice, um, I'd argue that the investments in some cases really can be done yourself. I'm not one to sit here and say everyone can't do that. Um, but a lot of times, you know, you come in, you don't figure out, or, you know, I see clients, um, for a one-year engagement, we don't see them all the time. You don't have a CPA or somebody that knows the tax law looking at your personal, your practice, and your savings telling you exactly what to do. You just don't know what you're missing. Um, so you might get 30 years down the road, you did everything good, but had you paid for maybe two or three consultations along the way, you might have got an A-plus and put it in the exact right buckets had the exact right retirement plan um, and shaved, you know, a few thousand bucks a year off the cost, maybe 10,000 bucks. You know, you just, you don't know what you're missing. And most of the time people are. Um, and that's where, you know, I get, well, I've got this one story where I, I ran this uh, webinar during the pandemic and this doctor calls me up and he is freaking out. He, he did not do anything the right way that I, 
uh, said to it. I'm like, oh gosh, well, I, I deal with these doctors all the time. I'll help them get retired. No problem. Uh, we'll figure it out. And I'm like, so tell me how much money you have. And he's like, well, you're like $6 million. I'm like, you know, why do you care? He's like, well, I could probably could have had 10. I'm like, you're probably right, but you still got six. Just call it a day. But you don't want to look back and kind of figure out the hard way that you weren't doing it the exact right way. You weren't doing the tax strategies the right way. You had the wrong retirement plan, could have done it better uh, and figure out that you were missing out on very large sums of money. Um, The investing side, that's one where I think the younger people get, they are actually starting to do it themselves. Um, To some extent, I think a lot of people can, especially when you're just starting out and you're throwing it into most of the younger do-it-yourselfers or in the index fund bucket. So a lot of them are throwing it in there. Um, at some point in most people's lives, it becomes such a high amount of money that they kind of lose faith in themselves. And they're not really doing it perfect, but kicking off out the gate, you know, somebody's telling me they're throwing it in Vanguard. You know, I'm not one to sit there and beat them up. You know, they're like, well, what are you doing? I'm like something very similar to what you're doing. <laughs> we'll yeah. see who's right in 10 But they say a VT, uh, uh, VTIX and chill or whatever, you know, or just dump all your money in just a, a, a broad index fund of, you know, full total market index fund and just let it ride, which I know apparently white coat investors, one that I follow too, but there are people that rack up millions of dollars by just throwing a big pile of money in those Vanguard accounts. But I'm sure once you hit half a million dollars or a million dollars in there, you're just like, yeah, I better have a professional, maybe at least take a peek and help me with some of this just to make sure I shouldn't be doing something more creative with this. It, no, and I wouldn't even say it's more creative. It's just uh, diversification is going to be your friend. Can you keep it properly allocated? Can you manage it? And as you're throwing large sums of money into it, any mistake you made really doesn't get brought to light because let's say you weren't 100% properly allocated, but you're saving 150000 a year. And all of a sudden the S&P 500 goes down by 40%, but you bought 150000 of it at a discount. It's going to make up for your mistake. <laughs> you know, it's not as if 10 years later, somebody's going to look at it and say, you know, hey, Casey, you were only in the S&P 500 in 2022, weren't you? You're not going to be able to tell when you hit the flip side of it and you start withdrawing it, your allocation mistakes will come to light very, very quickly. Um, like if you were a retired doctor in 2022 and you needed to take 150 out to spend this year and you were only in the S&P 500 and it was down 30%, 20% when you took it out, that's going to sting. So it, it's a lot easier to do it yourself on the way in, a lot harder on the way out. Yeah, yeah. Wes, we uh, we're at a right about an hour on the money, maybe just a minute over. But I think we I think we knocked out all ten, and I'm, I'm excited. We actually covered it more in detail than I thought we were going to be able to. So we got some really good, you know, we got in the weeds on some topics. I think we hit some really cool stuff. Is there? Um, let me let me summarize the ten just for people that. Um, let me go back and go over the list of ten one more time. So and then and then I'll kind of end with some final thoughts and comments from you here. But so. Top 10 common financial stakes you've got here. We talked about improper insurance, not being insured properly. Talked about whole life plans, some of that stuff. Not having a budget, saving in the wrong places. We talked about not managing your debt properly, not prioritizing debt properly. Uh, Not concentrating on your salary or getting your income up. We talked about uh, paying excessive taxes, uh, giving Uncle Sam too much money. Talked about being house poor. Uh, one house, one spouse, not taking advantage of HSAs, and then trying to be a financial expert. So that's our our list of 10. And I, I think that's a very healthy, comprehensive uh, 
a comprehensive list there. Was there anything else we missed on that list? Um, I didn't you know. I think we went through all my notes pretty well, but anything else uh, in summary, I guess, that you have to, you know, that we missed today? No, I'll tell you in summary, since a, a lot of the listeners here aren't, don't own a practice yet, you know, biggest thing to take away though is uh, greatest thing you'll ever do for yourself is buy your own practice, own your own practice and be able to make that income, put the money away, do all these tax items. So do yourself a favor. If you were to take one thing home tonight, it's that you want to be a practice owner and not an associate for life. Fantastic advice. Wes, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, liked what they heard today and maybe has specific questions um, on any of these topics, is there a good contact way that a listener could reach out to you or get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you reach out to Janet Blair and you can either go to the McGill, it's mcgillhillgroup.com or her phone number, it will be 704-424-9780. Um, if you reach out to her, say, hey, I've heard Wes on the podcast. I was hoping I could talk to somebody on his team about something. Um, she'll get you on either myself or Mario Santiago, my uh, other tax and business planner. She'll get you on one of our calendars as soon as you can for a 30-minute call. And we'll be happy to talk to anybody and kind of help you through, uh, especially if you did one of these and you think you made a mistake. Uh, please reach out. We won't give you a sales pitch. We'll try to get you a, a way to get out of it and hopefully uh, on a better path. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, oh, and shout out to the, uh, McGill advisor. If somebody's, this is my little plug for you guys, but if anybody's, a, a yep, you know, thinking about owning a practice currently owns a practice and maybe doesn't do the best job of keeping a pulse on what's going on in the markets, what kind of, uh, legal changes bills are getting passed. Like I would also recommend your guys's McGill advisory, that newsletter, it's a couple hundred bucks a year and you get, you know, a, a newsletter every month. And it's just got, you know, I, I think your guys's catchphrase, you know, if you don't, save the money, um, that you've, you know, you're going to make up many times over, uh, the cost of the newsletter in just preventing financial mistakes and investing more and all those things. And I, I definitely found your newsletter helpful. So, um, I would just encourage any listeners to maybe check out that McGill advisory and see if it's, if it's something that might benefit you in your practice as well. Absolutely. And one last thing, um, if you use code pediatric 10, you'll get 10% off. Uh, for listening to this podcast. And also for all of you residents out there, students out there listening to the podcast, uh, you can actually get a subscription for free for being a student. Uh, So if you go to mcgilladvisory.com, you can register, you can go ahead and get on there at no cost, see what it's all about um, and get get a preview while you're still in school. One more time. What was that code? Because I want to put the uh, I want to put that in the description. A pediatric and the number 10 pediatric 10. Okay. Sounds good. Wes, thanks again. I kept you up late here, but uh, I appreciate you going through all these things with me. Good conversation. And uh, um, let's do it again sometime. Uh, Thanks so much, Casey. It was great being on here. And uh, again, thank you everyone for tuning in. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Wes. Have a good night. We'll talk soon. Uh, You too. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Be sure to DM our host, Casey Getz, on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough clinical situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.